Hello, climbers. Welcome to the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm John Bergman, and I'm in the hosting chair for this episode. Today's guest is John McGowan. I don't even know the single best way to describe John. Entrepreneur, business developer, old school climber, but new school visionary, adventurer, all of the above. I will say this, if someone were putting together a list of the most important people, figures, of the climbing gym industry of the past, I don't know, 35 or 40 years, basically as long as there has been some semblance of an American climbing gym industry, if there was a list like that, John McGowan would absolutely be one of the names on it. He has started businesses that have contributed immensely to key evolutions of the climbing industry, as you will hear about. In terms of his resume, he founded Boulder Rock Club in 1990. He and a business partner, Steve Holmes, then founded Eldorado Climbing Walls a few years after that. Later, he and Steve Holmes also started True Blue Auto Belays. So if you have ever been lowered on a True Blue Auto Belay, you have been figuratively connected to today's guest, John McGowan. And more recently, he was involved in founding Riversmith, which is a company that he will explain more about in the conversation. So give the CBJ podcast a like if you enjoy what you're hearing. That does actually help other people see it in their algorithms. You can write a review for the CBJ podcast if you're feeling extra generous, or you can just chill and listen, and that is cool too, because I'm just glad that you're tuning in. I'm gonna run through a couple of ads, and then after that, I hope you enjoy the chat that I have with John McGowan. CBJ and this podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. Kilter Grips has produced many of the most popular hold shapes in the world for almost 10 years. They also invented the Kilter Board, an innovative standardized training board with intuitive LEDs that light up the full hold perimeter. Kilter has won more CBJ Grip List awards than any other company. Learn more at settercloset.com. True Blue is the only auto belay with magnetic braking. They're proud to be the official auto belay of USA Climbing, and True Blues can be found on climbing walls across the world. Their one-of-a-kind, no-delay-belay program will automatically ship you a ready-to-hang True Blue before your current one is due for service. Learn more at headrushtech.com. John McGowan, thank you for coming on to the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I am really looking forward to chatting with you because I feel like there are so many different points of your career that we could drop in on. So we'll just choose a couple of those today, but I'm sure we will have plenty to talk talk about. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. Happy to be here with you there, John. I want to start with a, kind of a random point, I think, but I was very intrigued when I heard this as I was doing some prep for this conversation. I heard a rumor that I hope is true because I'd love to hear the story that you discovered gold, which <laughs> sounds to me like some sort of Indiana Jones meets prospecting type of situation. So I would be all ears. Maybe we can start there. Tell me, can you confirm or deny this? And if you can confirm it, I am a captive audience. Okay. Well, I can't confirm that. It's, uh, it's sort of a weird part about my history. Uh, after after college, I ended up ski bumming over in Europe for a couple of years, and uh, that led to to sort of taking an interest in sailing. And uh, you know, I, I eventually ended up living in in Cape Cod, um, and and after that, I, I bought a little sailboat. It was a little twenty foot sailboat, and one thing led to another, and eventually sailed it down to Venezuela, and. Uh, that led to some inland travel, and uh, and uh, after traveling around a bit, I met a guy that was interested in in uh, dredging for gold down in Venezuela, and uh, and ultimately, I four years later, uh, I, you know, I ended up dredging for gold, uh, and uh, and that's sort of what funded a lot of the, the uh, climbing interests. So 
you're you're right with that one. <laughs> so, so we'll get into the climbing interest in a second, but first of all, dredging f- for gold, were you doing that for that entire four years or were you, d- tell me how, I mean, and did you have a plot of land? I mean, my knowledge of this is I'm thinking of the cowboy movies that I've seen where they are sifting, you know, in the river uh, with, with the, the pan. Uh, is that, is that yeah, not the no, case? No, it was a little different. What, what happened is I met a guy down, in, he was sort of working in the Amazon base on the Amazon part of Venezuela. Um, and I, I happened to meet him and uh, he kind of showed me their operation. And, and really what it led to is a dialogue that he, he had an idea of these, these dredging platforms. Basically, they were floating platforms, maybe about 30 feet wide by 70 feet long. And uh, they had a motor on them with a big sluice box. And so you would pump up sand and gravel from the bottom of the river uh, and it would go up over the sluice box. You'd just sort of run 24 hours a day. And whatever filtered into into the uh, you know the bottom of your sluice boxes is, is kind of what you ended up with in gold in the end end of the end of the day. Uh, we began discussing some of the challenges of, of dredging for gold down there, and it was a very high risk sort of thing to do, as you might imagine, because you had a diver on the bottom of the uh, of the water and as as their bottom of the river, and as they were dredging through the material. A lot of times you'd lose visibility and and large boulders would fall on you. And, and so it was essentially extremely dangerous. And so we, we began discussing ways that we could do it uh, perhaps a little safer. And, and so we, we talked about building sort of a combination of a backhoe, a dredge with a backhoe arm. And uh, ultimately, I ended up uh, going back to the U.S. to research essentially how to build a backhoe. And uh, and took that technology down there, and and uh, this this guy and, and myself started started this business, and uh, one dredge dredge led to the next dredge, and you know four years later, uh, of living in completely the wild west. Uh, so if you ever want to talk about that, be happy to tell you many many stories of just uh, <laughs> why people probably shouldn't go down and dredge gold for <laughs> in Venezuela but ultimately it was a it was a really fun and, and exciting part of my life. Can you indulge me with just maybe one brief story <laughs> because I feel like that is the biggest hook to say if you ever want to ask about this I've got some good stories so I have to ask. Okay. Um well let me tell you that what where we were dredging it ended up being sort of a concession and you know everything was was you know fairly corrupt down there so in order to get into the concession you had to pay different people and and do different uh do different things in order to to kind of legally uh legally dredge and um at, inevitably what we found is that you know through this dredging community you would you would go out and dredge and whenever you found a high concentration of gold they would, they would come up with some reason to shut it down. And it was always just something like, oh, this is getting out of hand. Boy, there's just too many too many people here. We're going to have to shut it down. Essentially, after a few years, we realized they were, they were creating a treasure map and basically using all of these private dredging entities to do all of their exploration. And so ultimately, after one, it, it had been closed down uh, after one of these events. Uh, what they did is they had all of the different dredges, there were probably 20 of them, uh, brought to the shore of the concession, and then they welded them together uh, to ensure that people wouldn't wouldn't uh, try to go out and, and dredge. Well, in the, in the evening, after all the Guardia Nacional, that was the military division, uh, had left for the night, they would they would leave one Guardia Nacional to, to sort of post and make sure that everyone behaved. Well, we would just pay them off. And uh, whip out the cutting torches and and cut the dredges apart, and off we'd go steaming down river to to get to a really you know a, one of the really good spots we'd found, and we would dredge all night long, and uh, ultimately come back in the morning and and try to just get there and weld our dredges back together in order to uh, <laughs> in order to be uh, be good for the rest of the Guardian National. Um, well, ultimately, one of these nights in, in dredging, we were dredging in, in this river called the Caroni River, and uh, the particular area that we were dredging was right above Kachamay Falls, which in a way kind of looks a little bit like Niagara Falls. And so you, you definitely don't want to make a mistake because it was probably class three water, so it, it had some difficulty in navigation to get down there. 
And uh, and so one of these nights we were working down there, um, possibly my last night, I'm not sure, uh, but ultimately you would uh, drop an anchor or two and then another dredge would pull up next to you. They'd drop an anchor and you'd, you'd sort of, uh, it was maybe six or seven barges at a time just kind of working this this material. And as this was kind of unfolding, there was one objective danger, and that is if you brought up too much material without enough water, uh, the material would begin to pile up in your sluice box. And conceivably, uh, you, if you piled up enough material, you could sink your dredge or turn it over. And ultimately, uh, you, could, you could see this happening or hear it happening if a, re- if a dredge, began, their engine began to rev. And so we're just happily working our, our way that one evening and uh, all of a sudden on the end, one of these dredges starts revving and uh, and essentially just flipped over. Um, so as this material happened, flipped over and started pulling the whole chain, everyone was was tied together. And so we're out frantically trying to cut ropes and doing whatever. But ultimately, that dredge flipped over above those waterfalls and uh, and drifted off into the night. And uh, I think that was about when when I was kind of like, you know, I'm not sure this is really worth it. Uh, it, it just was a little bit wild westy. And uh, and ultimately, I, th- I think that was that was definitely toward the end, uh, if not my last night working down in Venezuela. <laughs> it sounds like something that if this had been any other time in your life, maybe if you had had a, a little bit older with a little bit of whiz- wisdom and a little bit of risk assessment, you might have looked at the situation differently and said, eh, maybe this isn't, this isn't for me <laughs> a little too yeah, much de- hazard. Definitely that. Yeah, definitely that. There wasn't a whole lot of wisdom in my early days. It was, it was more adventure, less wisdom for sure. <laughs> I would love to keep hearing these stories, but since this is a, the climbing business journal podcast, let's transition into the climbing industry. You said that this all the dredging for gold helped fund your initial forays into climbing business were you a climber at the time i mean there is climbing in venezuela but i don't know if you had much time to do it if even if you were capable yeah i grew up uh, in colorado and uh and uh, you know it was had a, a high level of interest in climbing and so down in venezuela um i did did quite a bit of climbing and um you know more typically you know in the area that i was living at the time down there bouldering but i was definitely a passionate climber and, you know, as whenever I could get a hold of a climbing magazine, uh, I would certainly just go through it uh, cover to cover. And, you know, I was starting to read a little bit about the, the emerging climbing, uh, the business of climbing, indoor climbing. And uh, and that that kind of uh, got me to thinking. And so, it was, you know, having grown up around Colorado, uh, I, I definitely looked at that being a sort, sort of an epicenter uh, for, for climbing at the time. Um, and ultimately began my, my, uh, escape from Venezuela, thinking about building a climbing gym in, in Boulder. Um, so by the time I, I actually got back, um, that was kind of the, the thought process is, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to, first of all, explore the business of climbing and understand what that's about. And at the time there was probably less than 10 climbing gyms across the country. Uh, a few like um, um, Vertical World in Seattle uh, had been there. Um, Paradise Rock Gym in Denver had just opened. Uh, there was a little gym called the Body Shop in in uh, Salt Lake City. That was just a little bouldering gym. Uh, there was a new new climbing gym out in in, uh, in San Francisco called uh, City Rock. And so ultimately, as I was kind of exploring these different gyms, you know, I was kind of looking at the different at the different operations, and uh, most of them were actually pay, sort of a pay-to-play type of scenario, where you just paid, you bought a guest pass, in essence. Um, but what I started to, to sense was, it, it, you know, there was one gym that was sort of doing a membership-based business, and so this kind of led led me in in Boulder to starting to think about, uh, you know, the business of climbing as sort of a fitness club. Uh, which uh, which was very fortuitous, I think. You know, in in the early days, is is uh, what what I did is I uh, I started looking around at at different fitness clubs and just sort of interviewing different people, and and that's really how I came across my my partner at the time, a guy named Scott Woodard, 
Uh, Scott and Karen Woodard at the time were running running uh, Boulder's Pulse Fitness Clubs. And uh, fortuitously enough, uh, one of their fitness clubs, I think they had three or four around Boulder. One of their fitness clubs had an adjacent space that was vacant in a building that's, that Scott Woodard controlled. And so I presented Scott with my idea of, uh, you know, I really see the parallel of this being, you know, a, a, a you know, great, you know, tie in for for uh, fitness. And so that kind of led to to Scott and I partnering up and uh, and eventually we uh, we started the Boulder Rock Club. So with this new model, the, the idea of a membership as opposed to the day pass idea, the guest pass idea. Tell me about how you rolled out the initial membership structure and how people responded to that, because that would have been, as you just explained, pretty innovative for the time. Yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. And I, I can't I can't say that, that uh, we can claim um, to sole ownership of that idea. However, um, most of the gyms at the time were doing, you know, sort of a, a guest past scenario. Uh, there was a little little teeny um, uh, climbing gym that existed in Boulder. Actually, when we started it, it was at, uh, at Katz uh, Training Center, which was a gymnastics facility. And they were a good example of they had, you know, perhaps, you know, 40 or 50 people climbing there, mostly just paying, you know, I think I think five or six dollars a day in order to climb. And so as I was kind of running the math on, on running a climbing gym, it, it just I could I couldn't seem to make things work with with, you know, just a, a guest pass scenario, um, especially given the seasonality of, of climbing. And um, and so ultimately uh, where membership came in is is really trying to tr to um, sort of structure, uh, you know, a, a, an, an annual plan. Uh, in, in which uh, in which we could survive both the winter, spring, summer, and fall. Um, and so um, the gyms that we toured, we did note that they were doing exceedingly well. So the, those couple of gyms that that were doing this, uh, you know, they seemed like they were they were really cranking and they were they were growing a fast membership. So as I as I was writing the business plan for the Boulder Rock Club, um, I projected. Uh, that in our first year, we we would, uh, or, or even on our pre-sale, we would probably start with about 100 members. And as it turned out, you know, when we got got the idea out there before we opened, we, we sort of did like a little bit of a police line inside the facility where people could come in and see the construction going on. And uh, while that was happening, we were, we were selling memberships. And, and essentially, we launched with about 170 members or memberships. Uh, sold and uh, and ultimately that's that's kind of when we knew we were on the right track of things. Yeah, early '90s. Can you give me an idea of the climbing scene? Because certainly Boulder was a mecca, one of the meccas in the United States. Because really, back then, I think gyms predominantly or only existed in places where there was vibrant outdoor climbing as well. So you think of places like Boulder, Salt Lake City, like uh, you know, and and other places out west. Uh, what do you remember about about yeah. being the, an epicenter? Well, I mean, for, from my standpoint, um, definitely, I, I w was of the belief that the only place that could support a climbing gym of that era, you know, was somewhere that, that had a high concentration of, of climbers. Uh, later, I, I sort of evolved that theory into just, you know, no, climbing is, you know, wherever there's a large population, you know, you, all of a sudden it can, it can support it. But in the early days, you know, there was this uh, massive, you know, uh, kind of hidden climbing community around Boulder. And uh, and so what I remember is uh, is in the early days. um a lot of people had come in and there there were these just, you know, big name climbers and just all, all these different people that were like, no, I'll never climb indoors. You know, they thought of it kind of as as well, almost the division line between sport climbing and trad climbing. And so Boulder uh, had a, a bigger uh, trad climbing community than they had a sport climbing community. Uh, there were there was a few people, Christian Griffith, you know, um, uh, Mike Pond, a few of these guys that were embracing uh, sport climbing, but they were definitely the exception and, and not not the rule. And so the early dialogue that we had from folks was, um, yeah, this will never work. Um, I remember one day, uh, for example, uh, uh, Derek Hersey. Uh, I don't I don't know if you know Derek or knew of Derek, but uh, 
he was he was famous for you know climbing really hard climbs uh free solo at the time and uh basically you know so he'd be out doing these in, insane things and just a, and, you know an amazing climber an amazing spirit and uh and he was one of the few people that actually embraced it and and basically said no this is this is great because it's it's creating this social environment uh, so ultimately we didn't quite know what to expect in the early days. Uh, we didn't know how important the social, uh, uh, part of climbing was going to be, but what we saw within that prob- probably first 18 months of being open is that one by one, the people that were, you know, uh, the most averse to what we were doing, uh, started embracing it and, and started coming in, not so much to, to train per se, but it was more uh, for for the social environment, um, and partially it was driven. Also, we were, we were you know doing a lot of slideshows and different things you know that were just of, of high interest. So, you know, people come in would come in and drink a beer, you know, and uh, and uh, you know I think that that they began to see that you know the social part of it was was just as important as as the climbing uh, climbing part of it. That is one of the things I notice when I look back on the issues of climbing magazine from particularly the early nineties, maybe the late eighties there. It it seemed like there were so many slideshows going on at gyms from pro climbers, from Lynn Hill to Bobby Benzman, all these, it it just seemed like, and I know climbers and authors and whatnot still do that nowadays, but it doesn't seem like it is to the degree that it was back then. And I always flip through those magazine pages with great envy because that would, I, I just love that idea, and I wish that was still as prevalent. And it sounds like it was a big part of your gym as well in the in the early '90s. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the the big change there, you know, if you think back at the early days of climbing, is most climbers were sort of you know embracing the dirtbag side of things. You know, it was not a, a super lucrative thing, certainly not mainstream. And so there was there was not a lot of venues. They couldn't have sold out a coliseum, let's say. You know, and and so even Lynn Hill. You know, who is just you know as as widely known as as anyone in the climbing uh, world. Uh, you know, uh, Lynn would have had a hard time you know selling out a coliseum, whereas she, you know she could come to a climbing gym and every climber would for sure come to see see Lenny. Um, so ultimately, yeah, that was that was just kind of a part of the unique nature of it. Is it was a, it was a very tight community initially, and it was re- largely bringing in the the climbers rather than. I'd say the generic fitness crowd um, that later transitioned, you know, a few years later, we saw, you know, all of a sudden membership went from 170 up to, you know, 450, you know, to, uh, you know, all of a sudden we had this teeny little 3000 square foot climbing gym with nearly 500 members um, by 1994. And ultimately that led to, all of this talk and speculation and of another climbing gym coming to Boulder. And, uh, and so ultimately, you know, we started you know, doing our own due diligence that, that sort of led to, to our, our evolution uh, of, of the second Boulder Rock Club um, that came out in 1995. What were you doing for route setting at the time? Because I know you mentioned the Paradise Rock Gym, and I know that Mike Pont, who's someone you, you referenced, was working there as a route setter for a, a time. And I know Christian Griffith was doing some route setting, especially in the early 90s for Jeff Lowe's circuit. W- where were you finding your route setters? And and if you could find them, were they getting any sort of training? I mean, the idea of route setting as a career it, it, nowadays is a thing. Back in 1990, 91, 92, maybe not so much. So I'd love to hear about just all things route setting for the early days of Boulder yeah. Rock Club. Yeah, well, uh, let me say that it's a, a Paradise Rock Gym opened, um, you know, sort of as as we were just starting our construction. So they had a few months, uh, you know, um, they jumped us for, by a few months. And, and so it, it, we're starting to figure things out. Um, I'm not sure how they got Kurt Smith and, and Mike Pont uh, interested. Um, but Brian Vandekraal was really he was the owner of the Paradise Rock Gym. He was he was a very uh, smart guy. Um, and, uh, you know, he really observed, I mean, he was, he was the person that just understood the power of route setting. Um, and so I certainly, you know, picked that up immediately from, from Brian and it almost became, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, a, 
an escalation of, of, you know, who could set the best routes or, you know, who could recruit, recruit the best route setters. Um, we in the, in, in, I think in 1991, uh, recruited Ian Powell and Jimmy Rito and some of these guys, uh, that were, you know, very, both creative. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a characteristic too, is, is Kurt and Mike were not only great climbers, they were passionate, uh, but they they uh, really uh, they became sort of cult icons, you know, within within the industry. And so um, basically, we kind of observed very early on that that is the product. The route setting is the product. Um, and so it's it's certainly more important than almost anything that you're, you're going to do within a climbing gym. And so you needed to invest heavily on that. Now, as far as actually getting um, getting people to do it, it was it was interesting because uh, in, in the early days, um, even Mike and Kurt and Jimmy and, and all these guys, as, 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 great, as great as they were at route setting, they would typically migrate towards setting hard routes for, for themselves and their friends to, to climb. And so, you know, when you when you were setting a, a 513, you know, they would set a masterpiece. But when it came to a, to a 510, it was less than ideal. And so ultimately they became really adept at doing that. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that they weren't good at that uh, because they, they became excellent at it, but it, therein lay the real challenge of, of route setting in the early days is we found, for example, you could bring in the best climbers that could set a 513 and, and, you know, yeah, they could set a 5.9, 5.10, 5.7. Uh, but the 5.13 was going to be excellent. The 5.7 was not going to be that great. And so we thought, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll bring in five seven climbers to to uh, you know to route set the low end routes or the five ten climbers or whatever. And uh, but there was a uh, the, there was a distinct problem with that in that uh, in that those climbers within three months became you know they were they were climbing five thirteen in three months, you know. So just the act of route setting at that at that level and climbing all your routes, it just made them in, into hard guys immediately. So ultimately, that that sort of led to to an evolution of just investing really heavily in in, in getting the the route setters to be in in good alignment with the interests of the, of the climbing gym, uh, to to try to set really good creative routes, um, which I have to say is still probably one of the biggest difficulties in in climbing gyms. Uh, if every climbing gym knew that this was uh, of high importance. Uh, they might do things a little bit different. Um, for example, in just thinking of a, the journey of someone, you know, coming in and as an introductory climber, taking a, a learn to climb class, uh, if they have a, a poor experience, uh, you know, they're not going to continue into, into the future of uh, being a member. And if they have a great experience, and if there's no holes between being a five nine climber and a, a five twelve climber, like if there's great five elevens, five eleven A's, five eleven pluses, all, all that kind of stuff, all the way up, uh, then the interest remains, and they can just become a lifetime climber. Um, and I saw that kind of, as as I got involved a little later on building climbing gyms and doing some consulting for climbing gyms, we would occasionally build a climbing gym that started off with a really strong membership base but ultimately they would find oh you know our membership is flattening out we have some sort of a problem and inevitably i'd fly out there and and uh, take a look at their uh, i'd just say let's go let's just go climb let's check the product out first and inevitably what i would see is sort of this same problem that would happen which would be the 512s were excellent but the five nines were just horrible you know that they, they were not changing the routes uh, the tape was missing, blah, 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 all these different things. So it was just this focus on, on the, the hard end routes. Can you talk a little bit more about that transition from starting Boulder Rock Club and then a second Boulder Rock Club and then yourself going into building climbing gyms and the founding of El Dorado Climbing Walls um, as sort of the next step in the evolution of your own career there right about 1995, if I remember correctly? Yeah, be happy to. Um, the uh, the entity that we hired to build our climbing walls for the first uh, climbing gym, the first Boulder Rock Club, was a, was a company called Radwall, and uh, it was run by a guy named Wayne Campbell. You know, he was a, he was an amazing artist, and I have to say that their work was just you know impeccable. It was a beautiful, uh, beautiful type of work. 
Um, but I'd been in construction before and, and having kind of gone through that, that whole process, uh, the, the way that they were building climbing walls, it, it was a panelized system that required you to frame up the, the, the entire uh, climbing wall and then put your, cut your panels, put them up to within a 30 seconds of an inch tolerance, bring them down, then you would texture them, then you would hang them back up. It was this incredibly cumbersome uh, process which had some limitations as well. For example, you could use the seams. You could actually grab onto the seams or stand on the seams. And, and ultimately, as I, as I was kind of plotting the, uh, the, the uh, Boulder Rock Club 2, um, we were thinking, you know, there's just got to be a better way to do this. And so ultimately, that, that led to just sort of experimenting around as we were coming on to, to building that. Uh, and so I, I remember building, you know, bouldering walls in, in people's barns and, and uh, just early ways to, to, to sort of, you know, kind of think about a different and faster, faster way of building, lower cost way of building and a little more high performance. And that sort of led to um, to experimenting around. So this would have been maybe 1993, 94. So at, at about that point, we were thinking about the Boulder, the next Boulder Rock Club. And, uh, and essentially, uh, um, I recruited my dad, this guy named dude to, uh, to help, uh, to help develop the texture. And so basically he took an interest in it and would, would, uh, you know, try different textures that he could, he could, you know, place on any material. So one of the things he did is he texture cars, you know, and then drive down the road and all this stuff. So ultimately he, he came up with something that was called dude tax. It became sort of, you know, later on uh, a, a trademark of Eldorado Climbing Wall Company, and uh, and ultimately we built that uh, uh, that second gym using this this process. And uh, right around the the time that we were kind of thinking about building that that climbing gym is when I met my business partner Steve Holmes, uh, who was also an avid climber, and he'd done, uh, you know. He was involved with, uh, for example, the snowbird uh, climbing wall with with Jeff Lowe, and uh, so Steve Steve helped him do that. So Steve loved building. He was a, he was at the time a contractor, and he was in climbing one day at the Boulder Rock Club, and and he and I were talking a little bit about you know the, the next generation of the of the Boulder Rock Club, and uh, we started thinking, yeah, you know they're they're. You know, we've evolved this system. Um, we think there's some commercial viability in it. Um, and so right about the same time that we, I, I brought in Steve actually to to build, he acted as the contractor for the uh, for the second Boulder Rock Club. And in doing so, we started this relationship that's that's really lasted uh, till the, this day. We're still involved in different, different projects together, but uh, we've done all of these businesses uh, together. Can you... Talk a little bit about the importance of a partnership in starting a business, because I can't help but notice that when you mentioned Boulder Rock Club, you you said Scott Woodard, like you you sort of had somebody that was, if not a, a partner initially, certainly someone that you kind of linked up with. And then, of course, Steve Holmes, not only with Eldorado, but also then eventually with True Blue. And, and you said you you the two of you are still partners, business partners today. So can you speak to the importance of partnerships and Maybe more specifically, what goes into making someone a good business partner? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, yeah, the importance of partnerships. You know, I mean, I, th I think that they, you know, the right partner, you can actually build off of each other. It's it's a momentum gaining kind of thing. And, you know, I, I would say with with almost any business, there's going to be a lot of effort, you know, in the early years, especially if you're, you're bootstrapping a company. Uh, and, and so, you know, that that thing of kind of having a partner to really build that momentum, it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's critically important. At least it has been within my career. Um, as far as finding a good partner, and it's it's really interesting because I've talked to a million people who would, would say, well, you know, I can tell you what you don't want to do, and that is don't ever do a 50-50 partnership. Uh, those just don't don't work. And, uh, you know, so try to maintain controlling interests. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, all of my partnerships have been 50-50 partnerships. And and so I've had so many business people going, oh, man, that's insane. How, how in the world did that ever work? You know, there's 10 million ways for it to fail. 
And, uh, you know, I kind of thought back at, at my own career. And for example, my partnership in Venezuela, actually, uh, that one did collapse. And, and what, what really happened down there was that, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I was working really hard and putting all this energy in and my partner was just not. And so a 50, 50 partnership, you know, under those terms are, is just not going to work. I later kind of thought about it, um, in, in terms of, um, you know, why, do, why don't they work typically? And, and I, I think that, uh, generally speaking, um, you have to both have a fairly high work ethic, you know, or, and just trying to imagine how that can work over 10 years, you know, it's, it's sort of improbable in the, in the first place. Second part of it is, is you have to have a similar type of, you know, intellectual capacity, you have to bring something, you know, to the table. And, um, you know, if one if one person's, you know, really smart and the other one's not, uh, you know, that also doesn't work. So there's a lot of a, a lot of reasons the 50 50 partnership uh, doesn't work. Um, but I, I found it in, in my life, you know, to be, you know, just a, a, a great system. Uh, Steve was he's, he's you know, was always a hardworking guy, always super smart um, you know, and ultimately that led towards, you know, he, he could backfill the areas that I was weak at and I could backfill the areas that he was weak. But there was one given is that we were both extremely hard workers and we, we were pretty smart workers as well, uh, which, which meant that we could kind of, you know, navigate those early days of, of a business. And when I look at the businesses that you have started or, or co-started with Steve, you know, it's, it, uh, Boulder Rock Club, True Blue, Eldorado Walls. These are highly successful uh, components of the climbing industry. And so you, as we just mentioned the, about partnerships, but can you think of any other keys to founding or starting a business that actually works? <laughs> a huge question here. I'm sure we could devote a whole yeah. a different podcast episode to it. But other than a good partnership, what are some keys to founding a successful business? Yeah, um, that's another great question. Um, I, th I think ultimately my view on it is um, you don't have to be the smartest. You don't necessarily have to be the hardest working. You need to have, I think, more than anything, a vision of, of you know, where you want to go. And you have to have a fairly clear idea of where you're starting from. And then it's an incremental game. And, and so the way I think of any business, it is it's not that you always make the right decision. That's impossible. Um, you're going to make a lot of decisions in business. And incrementally, you want to make the right decision a little bit more often than the wrong decision. And so that incremental gain, uh, that incremental gain uh, in combination with having clarity of where you want to go, it means that you're going to just walk slowly toward the finish line. And so all of these businesses... You know, I, th I think that's that's the element. There was nothing that we did that was fast and easy. Uh, it was always just a slow kind of plotting thing. Um, I think I think also another element to, to business success is is kind of um, exploring opportunities. And, you know, I've had a lot of, of staff over the years that have said, wow, John, you, you've been so lucky because opportunities come your way. And, and boy, I just don't know why they don't come my way. And I think just being receptive to ideas, uh, my, my current observation is that everyone is bombarded with ideas all the time. It's just that most uh, sort of just don't, uh, choose not to, not to see them. And, uh, and some are just like, huh, I wonder if that could work. Um, so that, that incremental you know, kind of movement forward, um, I see it with others because if others, other, other folks that are starting businesses, if, you, if you're not super well grounded, like if you don't know where you really are starting, uh, it's difficult to pick a direction. So they end up working a little, a little here, a little there, you know, moving to the right, moving to the left and not necessarily moving, moving forward. Um, so I think it's so important to, to, to be very well grounded, um, you know, with, within any business uh, uh, type of thing. Can you explain a little bit about the current business that you're involved with? I know that you've kind of transitioned a little bit out of the climbing industry, and I think people would be interested in hearing how how and where that is that has taken you. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. 
my life has been really uh, sort of blessed in that in a, that I've been able to uh, turn my recreation into into my career. And so the things that I love to do, for example, when I was ski bumming in in, in Europe, um, I started getting into ski touring. And and at the time, you know, the ski equipment wasn't wasn't all that great. And so at the time that, that I was starting the Boulder Rock Club up, I got together with my brother and we we started thinking about you know, better ways of ski tour. And that led to backcountry access. And, uh, and so we operated that together. They eventually bought me out, uh, by the late nine, uh, 1990s, um, Bruce Edgerly and Bruce McGowan who ran that and, and, and it still continues to this day. But the, the big point there was, it was, a, it was something that we were passionate about. Uh, we felt like that there, there was something still to be said that, that, uh, that industry was, was still wide open. Um, my evolution past climbing, uh, sort of as I was climbing or as, as I was running my climbing based businesses and as they grew, uh, also, you know, um, I was managing more and more people. So with Headrush Technologies, we got up to about 80 people. And with that, uh, you know, it was just a higher stress and I, I needed uh, needed something to just cool down after work. And uh, and uh, my wife had introduced me into fly fishing uh, some time back. We were climbing a rifle, and she had a fly rod, and uh, and ultimately we started fly fishing. That uh, that act of fly fishing ended up sort of being my savior. Just it, it was it was what I needed to just calm down. And so again, as that passion grew, and uh, and um, you know, I started just being observant as to what was what was available and what was needed there. Um, I remember coming to my engineering team and, and sales team at Headrush Technologies one day. I was like, you know, there's not a great fly rod holder for for putting a fly rod on top of your your car, and and so you end up with this this problem that whenever you go fishing, if you want to go for an hour, you spend 15 minutes rigging, five minutes de-rigging, and in a very short amount of fishing. And so that that evolution, I threw this idea out of a better, you know, rooftop fly rod holder uh, to the team, expecting that they would be, ah, no, that's that's left field. There's no way we're going to do that. But weirdly, you know, everyone in, at Headrest was like kind of kind of interested in, oh, what, what are you thinking, blah, blah, blah. And so ultimately that led to this sort of emerging product that we didn't know what to do with at the time. And, um, you know, much like anything, um, you know, for example, the evolution from Boulder Rock Club to Eldorado Climbing Wall Company, uh, it was confusing to to run a climbing wall construction company, you know, with a brand named Boulder Rock Club. And and so that that became the evolution of that, which then sort of bifurcated and uh, and became its own entity. That same thing happened with Headrush Technologies. Is initially we were building Autobelays as Eldorado Climbing Wall Company, but as we launched more and more products into the aerial amusement industry, for example, zip lining, uh, it became confusing to have it come from a climbing brand, and so that that led to the evolution of, of Headrush Technologies. For, so for that same thing, uh, that that led to River Smith, and so that's that's the company that uh, is, is a fly fishing brand now that I'm I'm involved with. I think I've I've kind of picked up on something here and maybe you can expound on this. It it seems like a philosophy that you have held has all has long been the idea of make it better or make it easier because I think of Boulder Rock Club that's the idea of people want to climb well they don't have to go into the back country to climb they don't have to go out to the crag they can climb here in Boulder proper and then the idea of they want to climb it at home. Well, we can build them a home climbing wall with with Eldo, or even we didn't really get into much with the auto belay and whatnot. But they want to climb, but they don't have a partner. Well, let's make it easier. They can climb with a using a true blue auto belay, and then of course the extension being Riversmith and whatnot. Is that a fair assessment of a, a pillar of your business, uh, a pillar of your personal business philosophy? Being just find something that you're interested in, recreation, whatever. And make it better or make it easier for people. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's definitely been central to it. I can maybe expound on just a, you know one one aspect of that. It was the auto belay. Um, early on, when auto belays first came out, I want to say it was it was uh, right around year two thousand. Um, um, 
we heard of the concept of, of a self-retracting descender device from, from the, uh, um, the commercial safety industry. And uh, Mind Safety Appliance, MSA, that, which are one of the larger you know, industrial safety manufacturers, happened to be in Denver. And so ultimately, we started this dialogue with them about, you know, is it possible to, to create, you know, a, a belay device that we could use for, you know, for self-belaying? And that led to um, essentially MSA. They had a device that we could hang on the wall and it, and it lasted about 40 descents initially. And then they messed around with it a little bit and they got 60 descents, but we, we needed, you know, 100,000 descents. So it just wasn't quite the right product. Um, but eventually their engineering team, and we worked with many others to try to develop something as well, but that led to MSA developing this, this uh, product that was called the Redpoint Descender at the time. And it got up into the thousands of descents, still was not quite fit for purpose. But, you know, when when they got it into into the 10,000 descents uh, range, you know, I, I was just like, oh, my gosh, what this could do for training, uh, you know, just climbing up, climbing down, cl going in without a partner, what it could do for for the profitability of a climbing gym. For example, you could hang four auto belays and have one um, one belayer, one paid belayer, one instructor. Uh, you know, immediately I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is going to be revolutionary for every climbing gym, every climbing, uh, you know, uh, entity out there. And weirdly, you know, it took many years, you know, for people to, to adopt and embrace. Um, but yeah, seeing that, that potential of how it can make just, you know, life better, uh, you know, within the climbing world you know to me was uh it, it it was fairly obvious fairly early on and it's and it's really took many many years uh to to kind of you know um have others see that that vision ultimately what that did lead to is uh is because that that initial product uh, the friction-based bake breaking just wasn't quite there for the high cyclic use that led to to really trying to explore other technologies. So we looked at everything from hydraulic to, you know, whatnot. And, and finally, we were approached by a group uh, out of New Zealand that had this this eddy current technology. Uh, that uh, when they showed me the magnetic braking potential without sacrificial components, you know, that blew my mind. And uh, and all of a sudden, I was like, okay, this this has viability. You know, this this is the right product. And then uh, ultimately, uh, that's how we started that, that relationship. So we, we ended up licensing the technology. Uh, so El Dorado Climbing Wall Company licensed the technology from this New, New Zealand entity to, to bring this product into the recreational industries. And I think a, a part of that as well is certainly the auto belay as a device revolutionized gym training and and gym just access to climbing walls at gyms but it also revolutionized the sport of speed climbing now an olympic sport that is done on an auto belay device because i don't know if everybody listening remembers but years and years ago the speed climbing discipline was contested with there was an an actual person there that would belay the rope as the speed climber ascended the wall and the times that people are getting now uh, at the competitive World Cup Olympic level, a, a person belaying wouldn't be able to keep up with that. So without the auto belay, I don't think we would have the current iteration of speed climbing as an Olympic sport at all. That's just another <laughs> a little anecdote. That is. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe to conclude, you have always pursued your passions from the sound of it, your recreational passions and turned them into businesses or business ideas. Maybe you don't want to give away too much here, but do you have other passions that you are eyeing as like a potential business or do you get the thought like, ah, maybe someday I could, I could do something with, with this. You know, um, over the years, you know, uh, if you think about it, you know, you start, you start a business based on your passion of that, of that, Thing. Now, as the business evolves and, and gets bigger, you find yourself, you know, doing more um, just strategic thinking and business development. And, and that in itself 
uh, became of, of really high interest to me, you know, so I, I you know, I, I began to just to help other entrepreneurs, you know, as they're, they're working their way through, through their own thought process. Um, and, and interestingly enough, that, that has been really fun. So an idea that I always had, you know, uh, is, is, as I was, I was winding down my career, I wanted to spend more time, you know, in that, in that area. And I thought, you know, okay, well, one of the great ways I can do that is, is by, you know, getting on different board of directors to help, to help, you know, these different emerging entities. And, uh, and so ultimately as I tapered out of Headrush Technologies, um, I started picking up different board roles. And so now I'm, I'm involved with, uh, four different, um, you know, um, boards that are primarily in, in the outdoor industry. Uh, there's an, a couple of exceptions to that. Um, but I'm also doing some board work with, with, uh, nonprofits as well. But I think that, that ultimately for me, that's really satisfying because you, uh, if you think about the entrepreneur, the challenge with an entrepreneur is, is not only do you come up with the ideas, but then you have to execute them. And the execution is a very slow and cumbersome process. The ideas run a little quicker. And so being involved with different boards, it's just, it's just been so fun because I'm seeing that the, the fruits blossom just immediately. But, you know, my bandwidth has ex expanded astronomically. Uh, so it's, it's just been really fun. So that, that's sort of my, my main passion, I think right now. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm involved with a lot of different things that are just personal passions, but, uh, you know, that that's probably my main driving passion at this point. Well, before we get out of here, can you give people, if they want to know more about you or maybe about Riversmith, your current uh, business that you're working with, can, can you tell people where to go to find more information about John McGowan, John McGowan's companies and all that we've talked about. Yeah, well, my main uh, my main uh, point of contact is through Riversmith. Uh, that is the the company that I'm probably the most actively engaged with. I mean, I'm engaged not just uh, from a standpoint of, of board of directors and, and assistance on that level, but I'm also involved with product development and uh, testing and all of that. Uh, so Riversmith is located in, in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, ultimately, he's run by a great guy, John Coza. Um, and if anyone ever wants to to reach out out to me, you can you can get me at uh, John McGowan M C G O W A N at riversmith .com. This is great, John. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. We'll have to get you on again because I feel like we want I want to hear more of those more of the stories. There's so much that are in between the things that we talked about, I'm sure, but this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for, thank you for chatting. Absolutely, John. No, it's been great talking with you as well. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Big thanks to John McGowan for coming on the show. I said up top about rating and reviewing the show. If you like what you hear, please do that. We see the feedback and it is truly appreciated. Give Climbing Business Journal a follow on Instagram as well. Check out the webinar clips that we have posted on YouTube. Head over to our website and make sure you're subscribed to CBJ's Climb Insider newsletter. Just check out everything, all the media, because that's how media works these days, right? I really appreciate you tuning in. I'm John Bergman. See you next time with another guest. Music